12, Isenna refused to ratify, in passing through Etruria, on his way to Spain, Tiberius had observed with grief and indignation the deserted state of that fertile country, thousands of foreign slaves were tending the flocks and cultivating the soil of the wealthy landowners, while Roman citizens, thus thrown out of employment, could scarcely procure their daily bread, and had not a clod of earth to call their own, he now conceived the design of applying a remedy to the state of things, and with this view became a candidate for the tribunate, and was elected for the year B.C. 133. Tiberius, however, did not act with precipitation. The measure which he brought forward had previously received the approbation of some of the wisest and noblest men in the state, of his own father-in-law Pius Claudius, of Pimuchus Scavola, the great jurist, who was then consul, and of Crossus, the Pontifex Maximus. It was proposed to reenact the Licinian Law of B.C. 364 which had, in fact, never been repealed but with some modifications and additions, as in the Licinian Law. No one was to be allowed to possess more than 500 jugger of public land, but, to relax the string and key of this rule, every possessor might hold in addition 250 jugger for each of his sons. All the rest of the public land was to be taken away from them and distributed among the poor citizens who were not to be permitted to alienate these lots, in order that they might not be again absorbed into the estate of the wealthy. An indemnity was to be given from the public treasury for all buildings erected upon lands thus taken away. Three commissioners triumviri were to be elected by the tribes in order to carry this law into execution. The law affected only public lands, but it was no less a revolutionary measure. It is true that no prescription can, as a general rule, be pleaded against the rights of the state but the possessors of the public lands had enjoyed them without question for so long a period that they had come to regard these lands as their private property. In many cases, as we have already said, they had been acquired by bona fide purchase, and the claim of the state, now advocated by Gracchus, was regarded as downright robbery. Attacks upon property have produced the greatest convulsions in all states, and the Roman landowners were ready to have recourse to any measures to defeat the law but the thousands who would be benefited by it were determined to support Tiberius at any risk. He told them that the wild beasts of Italy had their dens, and holes, and hiding places, while the men who fought and bled in defense of Italy wandered about with their wives and children without a spot of ground to arrest upon. It was evident that the law would be carried, and the landowners therefore resorted to the only means left to them. They persuaded M. Octavius, one of the tribunes, to put his veto upon the measure of his colleague. This was a fatal and unexpected obstacle. In vain did Tiberius implore Octavius to withdraw his veto. The contest between the tribunes continued for many days. Tiberius retaliated by forbidding the magistrates to exercise any of their functions, and by suspending, in fact, the entire administration of the government. But Octavius remained firm, and Tiberius therefore determined to depose him from his office. He summoned an assembly of the people and put the question to the vote. Seventeen out of the thirty-five tribes had already voted for the deposition of Octavius, and the addition of one tribe would reduce him to a private condition. When Tiberius stopped the voting, anxious, at the last moment, to prevent the necessity of so desperate a measure, Octavius, however, would not yield. Complete what you had begun, was his only answer to the entreaties of his colleague. The eighteenth tribe voted, and Tiberius ordered him to be dragged from the rostra. Octavius had only exercised his undoubted rights, and his deposition was clearly a violation of the Roman constitution. 
This gave the enemies of Gracchus the handle which they needed. They could now justly charge him not only with revolutionary measures, but with employing revolutionary means to carry them into effect. The agrarian law was passed without farther opposition, and the three commissioners elected to put it in force were Tiberius himself, his father-in-law Pius Claudius, and his brother Caius, then a youth of twenty, serving under Piscipio at Numantia. About the same time news arrived of the death of Italy's Philometer, king of Pergamus, who had bequeathed his kingdom and treasures to the Republic. Tiberius therefore proposed that these treasures should be distributed among the people who had received assignments of lands, to enable them to stock their farms and to assist them in their cultivation. He even went so far as to threaten to deprive the Senate of the regulation of the new province, and to bring the subject before the assembly of the people. The exasperation of the nobility was intense. They tried every means to blacken the character of the tribune, and even spread a report that he had received a diadem and a purple robe from the envoy from Pergamus, and that he meditated making himself king of Rome. It was evident that his life would be no longer safe when he ceased to be protected by the sanctity of the tribune's office. Accordingly, he became a candidate for the tribunate for the following year. The tribunes did not enter upon their office till December, but the election took place in June, at which time the country people, on whom he chiefly relied, were engaged in getting in the harvest. Still, two tribes had already voted in his favor, when the nobility interrupted the election by maintaining that it was illegal, since no man could be chosen tribune for two consecutive years. After a violent debate the assembly was adjourned till the following day. Tiberius now became alarmed lest his enemies should get the upper hand, and he went round the forum with his child, appealing to the sympathy of the people and imploring their aid. They readily responded to his appeal, escorted him home and a large crowd kept watch around his house all night. Next day the adjourned assembly met on the capital in the open space in front of the Temple of Jupiter. The Senate also assembled in the Temple of Faith close by. Scipio Nasica, the leader of the more violent party in the Senate, called upon the consul Mucius Scaivola to stop the Ray election, but the consul declined to interfere. Fulvius Flaccus, a senator, and a friend of Tiberius, hastened to inform him of the speech of Nasica and told him that his death was resolved upon. Thereupon the friends of Tiberius prepared to resist force by force, and as those at a distance could not hear him, on account of the tumult and confusion, the tribune plumped with his hand to his head, to intimate that his life was in danger. His enemies exclaimed that he was asking for the crown. The news reached the Senate. Nausicaa appealed to the consul to save the Republic, but as Scaivola still refused to have recourse to violence, Nausicaa sprung up and exclaimed, the consul is betraying the republic. Let those who wish to save the state follow me. He then rushed out of the Senate House, followed by many of the senators. The people made way for them, and they, breaking up the benches, armed themselves with sticks, and rushed upon Tiberius and his friends. The tribune fled to the Temple of Jupiter, but the door had been barred by the priests, and in his flight he fell over a prostrate body. As he was rising he received the first blow from one of his colleagues and was quickly dispatched. Upward of three hundred of his partisans were slain on the same day. Their bodies were thrown into the Tiber. This was the first bloodshed at Rome in civil strife since the expulsion of the kings. Notwithstanding their victory, the nobles did not venture to propose the repeal of the agrarian law, and a new commissioner was chosen in the place of Tiberius. The popular indignation was so strongly excited against Scipio Nasica that his friends advised him to withdraw from Italy. Though he was Pontifex Maximus, 
and therefore ought not to have quitted the country. He died shortly afterward at Pergamus. All eyes were now turned to Scipio Africanus, who returned to Rome in B.C. 132. When Scipio received at Numantia the news of the death of Tiberius, he is reported to have exclaimed in the verse of Homer, So perish all who do the like again. The people may have thought that the brother-in-law of Tiberius would show some sympathy with his reforms and some sorrow for his fate. They were, however, soon and deceived, being asked in the assembly of the tribes by C. Papirius Carbo, the tribune, who was now the leader of the popular party, what he thought of the death of Tiberius. He boldly replied that he was justly slain. The people, who had probably expected a different answer, loudly expressed their disapprobation, whereupon Scipio, turning to the mob, bade them be silent, since Italy was only their stepmother. The people did not forget this insult, but such was his influence and authority that the nobility were able to defeat the bill of Carbo by which the tribunes might be re-elected as often as the people pleased. Scipio was now regarded as the acknowledged leader of the nobility and the latter resolved to avail themselves of his powerful aid to prevent the agrarian law of Tiberius from being carried into effect. The Italians were alarmed at the prospect of losing some of their lands, and Scipio skillfully availed himself of the circumstance to propose in the Senate PC 129 that all disputes respecting the lands of the Italians should be taken out of the hands of the commissioners and transferred to the consuls. This would have been equivalent to an abrogation of the law and accordingly the three commissioners offered the most vehement opposition to his proposal. In the forum he was attacked by Carbo, with the bitterest invectives, as the enemy of the people, and upon his again expressing his approval of the death of Tiberius, the people shouted out, Down with the tyrant! In the evening he went home accompanied by the Senate and a great number of the Italians. He retired to his sleeping room with the intention of composing a speech for the following day. Next morning Rome was thrown into consternation by the news that Scipio was found dead in his room. The most contradictory rumors were circulated respecting his death, but it was the general opinion that he was murdered. Suspicion fell upon various persons, but Carbo was most generally believed to have been the murderer. There was no inquiry into the cause of his death B.C. 129. Scipio was only 56 at the time of his death. To the Republic his loss was irreparable. By his last act he had come forward as the patron of the Italians. Had he lived he might have incorporated them in the Roman state, and by forming a united Italy have saved Rome from many of the horrors and disasters which she afterward suffered. The leaders of the popular party perceived the mistake they had made in alienating the Italians from their cause, and they now secured their adhesion by offering them the Roman citizenship if they would support the agrarian law. As Roman citizens they would, of course, be entitled to the benefits of the law, while they would, at the same time, obtain what they had so long desired an equal share in political power, but the existing citizens, who saw that their own importance would be diminished by an increase in their numbers, viewed such a proposal with the utmost repugnance, so strong was their feeling that, when great numbers of the Italians had flocked to Rome in B.C. 126, the tribune M. Junius Penus carried a law that all aliens should quit the city. Caius Gracchus spoke against this law, and his friends still remained faithful to the cause of the Italians. In the following year B.C. 125, M. Fulvius Flaccus, who was then consul, brought forward a reform bill, granting the Roman citizenship to all the Italian allies, but it was evident that the tribes would reject this law, and the Senate got rid of the proposer by sending him into Transalpine Gaul, where the Massilians had implored the assistance of Rome against the Salumvians. 
In the previous year Caius Gracchus had gone to Sardinia as quaestor, so that the Senate had now removed from Rome two of their most troublesome opponents, and the Italians had lost their two most powerful patrons. Pinter was the disappointment of the Italians. Frigelli, a town of Latium, and one of the eighteen Latin colonies which had remained faithful to Rome during the Second Punic War, took up arms, but its example was not followed, and it had to bear alone the brunt of the unequal contest. It was quickly reduced by the praetor Alopimis, the city was utterly destroyed, and the insurrection, which a slight success would have made universal, was thus nipped in its blood BC 125. Caius Gracchus had taken very little part in public affairs since his brother's death. He had spoken only twice in public, once in favor of the law of Carbo for the re-election of tribunes, and a second time in opposition to the alien act of Junius Penus, as already mentioned but the eyes of the people were naturally turned toward him. His abilities were known, and the Senate dreaded his return to Rome. He had been already two years in Sardinia, and they now attempted to retain him there another year by sending fresh troops to the province, and by commanding the proconsul to remain in the island. But Caius suddenly appeared at Rome, to the surprise of all parties B.C. 124. His enemies brought him before the censors to account for his conduct. But he defended himself so ably that not only was no stigma put upon him, but he was considered to have been very badly used. He showed that he had served in the army twelve years, though required to serve only ten, that he had acted as quaestor two years, though the law demanded only one year's service, and he added that he was the only soldier who took out with him a full purse and brought it back empty. Exasperated by the persecution of the Senate, Caius determined to become a candidate for the tribuneship and to reform the Roman constitution. He was elected for the year B.C. 123, and lost no time in bringing forward a number of important measures which are known as the Sempronian Laws. His legislation was directed to two objects, the amelioration of the condition of the poor, and the weakening of the power of the Senate. Caius was the greatest orator of all his contemporaries, the contagion of his eloquence was irresistible, and the enthusiasm of the people enabled him to carry everything before him. Ivis principal laws for improving the condition of the people were, 1. The extension of the agrarian law of his brother by planting new colonies in Italy and the provinces. 2. A state provision for the poor, enacting that corn should be sold to every citizen at a price much below its market value. This was the first of the legs through materiae, which were attended with the most injurious effects. They emptied the treasury, at the same time that they taught the poor to become state paupers instead of depending upon their own exertions for a living. 3. Another law enacted that the soldiers should be equipped at the expense of the Republic, without the cost being deducted from their pay, as had hitherto been the case. I.I. The most important laws designed to diminish the power of the Senate were, 1. The law by which the judices were to be taken only from the equites, and not from the senators, as had been the custom hitherto. This was a very important enactment, and needs a little explanation. All offenses against the state were originally tried in the popular assembly, but when special enactments were passed for the trial of particular offenses, the practice was introduced of forming a body of judices for the trial of these offenses. This was first done upon the passing of the Calpornian Law BC 149 for the punishment of provincial magistrates for extortion in their government direct attendees. Such offenses had to be tried before the praetor and a jury of senators. But as these very senators either had been or hoped to be provincial magistrates, they were not disposed to visit with severity offenses of which they themselves either had been or were likely to be guilty. 
by depriving the senators of this judicial power, and by transferring it to the Equites. Gracchus also made the latter a political order in the state apart from their military character. The name of Equites was now applied to all persons who were qualified by their fortune to act as judices, whether they served in the army or not. From this time is dated the creation of an ordo equestris, whose interests were frequently opposed to those of the Senate, and who therefore served as a check upon the latter. 2. Another law was directed against the arbitrary proceedings of the Senate in the distribution of the provinces. Hitherto the Senate had assigned the provinces to the consuls after their election, and thus had had it in their power to grant wealthy governments to their partisans, or unprofitable ones to those opposed to them. It was now enacted that, before the election of the consuls, the Senate should determine the two provinces which the consuls should have, and that they should, immediately after election, settle between themselves, by lot or otherwise, which province each should take. These laws raised the popularity of Caius still higher, and he became for a time the absolute ruler of Rome. He was re-elected tribune for the following year B.C. 122, though he did not offer himself as a candidate. M. Fulvius Flaccus, who had been consul in B.C. 125, was also chosen as one of his colleagues. Flaccus, it will be recollected, had proposed in his consulship to give the Roman franchise to the Italian allies, and it was now determined to bring forward a similar measure. Caius therefore brought in a bill conferring the citizenship upon all the Latin colonies, and making the Italian allies occupy the position which the Latins had previously held. This wise measure was equally disliked in the Forum and the Senate. Neither the influence nor the eloquence of Gracchus could induce the people to view with satisfaction the admission of the Italian allies to equal rights and privileges with themselves. The Senate, perceiving that the popularity of Gracchus had been somewhat shaken by this measure, employed his colleague, M. Living Drusus who was noble, well-educated, wealthy, and eloquent to undermine his influence with the people, with the sanction of the Senate. Drusus now endeavored to outbid Gracchus. He played the part of a demagogue in order to supplant the true friend of the people. He gave to the Senate the credit of every popular law which he proposed, and gradually impressed the people with the belief that the nobles were their best friends. Gracchus proposed to found two colonies at Tarantum and Capua, and named among the founders some of the most respectable citizens. Drusus introduced a law for establishing no fewer than twelve colonies and for settling 3,000 poor citizens in each. Gracchus, in the distribution of the public land, reserved a rent payable to the public treasury. Drusus abolished even this payment. He also gained the confidence of the people by asking no favor for himself. He took no part in the foundation of colonies, and left to others the management of business in which any money had to be expended. Gracchus, on the other hand, superintended everything in person, and the people always jealous in pecuniary matters, began to suspect his motives, during his absence in Africa, whither he had gone as one of the three commissioners for founding a colony upon the ruins of Carthage, Drusus was able to awaken his popularity still farther, on his return he endeavored in vain to reorganize his party and recover his power, both he and Flaccus failed in being re-elected tribunes, while Alokimis and Q. Fabius, two personal enemies of Gracchus, were raised to the consulship, the two new consuls had no sooner entered upon office B.C. 121 than they resolved to drive matters to extremities. One of the first measures of Ochimis was a proposal to repeal the law for colonizing Carthage, because it had been established upon the site which Scipio had cursed. It was evident that a pretext was only sought for taking the life of Gracchus, and Flaccus urged him to repel violence by force. 
Caius shrunk from the step, but an accident gave his enemies the pretext which they longed for. The tribes had assembled at the capital to decide upon the colony at Carthage, when a servant of the consul Ocimis, pushing against Gracchus, insolently cried out, Make way for honest men, you rascals. Gracchus turned round to him with an angry look, and the man was immediately stabbed by an unknown hand. The assembly immediately broke up, and Gracchus returned home. Foreseeing the advantage which this unfortunate occurrence would give to his enemies, the Senate declared Gracchus and Flaccus public enemies, and invested the consuls with dictatorial powers. During the night Opimis took possession of the temple of Castor and Pollux, which overlooked the forum, summoned a meeting of the Senate for the following morning, and ordered all the partisans of the Senate to be present, each with two armed slaves. Flaccus seized the temple of Diana on the Aventine, and distributed arms to his followers. Here he was joined by Gracchus. Civil war was thus declared. After some fruitless attempts at negotiation, the consul proceeded to attack the Aventine. Little or no resistance was made, and Flaccus and Gracchus took to flight, and crossed the Tiber by the Sublician Bridge. Gracchus escaped to the Grove of the Furies, accompanied only by a single slave. When the pursuers reached the spot they found both of them dead. The slave had first killed his master and then himself. The head of Gracchus was cut off, and carried to Ocimis, who gave to the person who brought it its weight in gold. Flaccus was also put to death, together with numbers of his party. Their corpses were thrown into the Tiber, their houses demolished, and their property confiscated. Even their widows were forbidden to wear mourning. After the bloody work had been finished, the consul, by order of the Senate, dedicated a temple to Concord. At a later time statues of the two Gracchi were set up in public places, and the spots on which they fell were declared holy ground, but for the present no one dared to show any sympathy for their fate. Their mother Cornelia retired to Mizanum, where she was visited by the most distinguished men. She loved to recount to her guests the story of her noble sons, and narrated their death without showing sorrow or shedding tears, as if she had been speaking of heroes of the olden time. Footnote 63 it must be recollected that the mob at Rome consisted chiefly of the four city tribes, and that slaves when manumitted could be enrolled in these four tribes alone. Chapter XXII. J.U.G.U.R.D.H.A. and his times. B.C. 118-104. The murder of C. Gracchus and his adherents left the nobility undisputed masters of the state, till their scandalous conduct in the Jugurtan War provoked a reaction against them, and raised to power a more terrible opponent than the Gracchi had ever been. This man, who took such signal vengeance upon the nobility, was the low-born Marius. He was a native of Arpinum, and was said to have worked for wages as a common peasant before he entered the ranks of the army. He first served in Spain, and was present at the siege of Numandia in B.C. 134. Here he distinguished himself so much that he attracted the notice of Scipio Africanus, and received from him many marks of honor. Scipio indeed admitted him to his table, and on a certain occasion, when one of the guests asked Scipio where the Roman people would find such another general after his death, he is said to have laid his hand on the shoulder of Marius, and said, Perhaps here, the name of Marius does not occur again for many years, but he doubtless continued to serve in the army, and became so distinguished that he was at length raised to the tribunate of the plebs in B.C. 119, though not till he had attained the mature age of 38. Only two years had elapsed since the death of C. Gracchus, and the nobles, flushed with victory, resolved to put down with a high hand the least invasion of their privileges and power, 
but Marius had the boldness to propose a law for the purpose of giving greater freedom at elections, and when the Senate attempted to overawe him, he ordered one of his officers to carry the consul Metellus to prison. Marius now became a marked man. He lost his election to the aedileship, and with difficulty obtained the praetorship B.C. 115, but he added to his influence by his marriage with Julia, the sister of C. Julius Caesar, the father of the future ruler of Rome. His military abilities recommended him to the consul Metellus B.C. 100, who was anxious to restore discipline in the army and to retrieve the glory of the Roman name, which had been tarnished by the incapacity and corruption of the previous generals in the Jugurtan War, which now requires our attention. Mazinissa, the ruler of Numidia, and so long the faithful ally of the Romans, had died in B.C. 149, at the advanced age of 90, leaving three sons, Mechipsa. Mastonabal, and Gulasa, among whom his kingdom was divided by Scipio Africanus, according to the dying directions of the old king, Mastonabal and Gulasa dying in their brother's lifetime, Mechipsa became sole king, Jugurta was a bastard son of Mastonabal, but Mechipsa brought him up with his own sons, Hyepsal and Adurdal, Jugurta distinguished himself so much that he began to excite the jealousy of Mechipsa, in order to remove him to a distance and not without a hope that he might perish in the war. Mechipsa sent him, in B.C. 134, with an auxiliary force, to assist Scipio against Numantia, but this only proved to the young man a fresh occasion of distinction. By his zeal, courage, and ability he gained the favor not only of his commander, but of all the leading nobles in the Roman camp, by many of whom he was secretly stimulated to nourish ambitious schemes for acquiring the sole sovereignty of Numidia, and notwithstanding the contrary advice of Scipio, the council seemed to have sunk deep into the mind of Jugurtha. On his return he was received with every demonstration of honor by Mechipsa, nor did he allow his ambitious projects to break forth during the lifetime of the old man. Mechipsa, on his deathbed, though but too clearly foreseeing what would happen, commended the two young princes to the care of Jugurtha, but at the very first interview which took place between them after his decease B.C. 118 their dissensions broke out with the utmost fierceness. Shortly afterward Jugurtha found an opportunity to surprise and assassinate Hyepsal, whereupon Adurdal and his partisans rushed to arms, but were defeated in battle by Jugurtha. Adurdal himself fled for refuge to the Roman province, from whence he hastened to Rome to allay his cause before the Senate. Jugurtha had now the opportunity, for the first time, of putting to the test that which he had learned in the camp before Numantia of the venality and corruption of the Roman nobility. He sent ambassadors to Rome to counteract, by a lavish distribution of bribes, the effect of the just complaints of Adurdal, and by these means succeeded in averting the indignation of the Senate. A decree was, however, passed for the division of the kingdom of Numidia between the two competitors, and a committee of senators sent to enforce its execution, but as soon as these arrived in Africa, Jugurtha succeeded in gaining them over by the same unscrupulous methods, and obtained, in the partition of the kingdom, the western division adjacent to Mauritania, by far the larger and richer portion of the 2 BC 117, but this advantage was far from contending him, and shortly afterward he invaded the territories of his rival with a large army, and Erdl was defeated in the first engagement, his camp taken, and he himself with difficulty made his escape to the strong fortress of Sertus. Here he was closely blockaded by Jugurtha. The garrison surrendered on a promise of their lives being spared, but these conditions were shamefully violated by Jugurtha, who immediately put to death Adurdal and all his followers B.C. 112. 
Indignation was now loud at Rome against the Numidian king, yet so powerful was the influence of those whose favor he had gained by his gold, that he would probably have prevailed upon the Senate to overlook all his misdeeds, had not one of the tribunes, see Memes, by bringing the matter before the people, compelled the senators to give way. War was accordingly declared against him, and one of the consuls, El Calpornis Bistia, landed in Africa with a large army, and immediately proceeded to invade Numidia B.C. 111, but Jagurna easily bribed Bistia and Amscarus, who acted as his principal lieutenant, to grant him a favorable peace, on condition only of a pretended submission, together with the surrender of thirty elephants and a small sum of money. As soon as the tidings of this disgraceful transaction reached Rome, the indignation excited was so great that, on the proposition of C. Memes, it was agreed to send the praetor Alcasius, a man of the highest integrity, to Numidia, in order to prevail on the king to repair in person to Rome, the popular party hoping to be able to convict the leaders of the nobility by means of his evidence. The safe conduct granted him by the state was religiously observed, but the scheme failed of its effect, for, as soon as Jugurtha was brought forward in the assembly of the people to make his statement, one of the tribunes, who had been previously gained over by the friends of Scorus and Bistia, forbade him to speak. He nevertheless remained at Rome for some time longer, and engaged in secret intrigues, which would probably have been ultimately crowned with success had he not in the meantime ventured to assassinate Massiva, son of Gulasa, who was putting in a claim to the Numidian throne. It was impossible to overlook so daring a crime, perpetrated under the very eyes of the Senate. Jugurtha was ordered to quit Italy without delay. It was on this occasion that he is said, when leaving Rome, to have uttered the memorable words, a city for sale, and destined to perish quickly, if it can find a purchaser. War was now inevitable, but the incapacity of Esti, Postumis Albinus, who arrived to conduct it BC 110, and still more that of his brother Aulus, whom he left to command in his absence, when called away to hold the elections at Rome, proved as favorable to Jugurtha as the corruption of their predecessors. Aulus, having penetrated into the heart of Numidia, suffered himself to be surprised in his camp, great part of his army was cut to pieces, and the rest only escaped a similar fate by the ignominy of passing under the yoke, but Jugurtha had little reason to rejoice I.